Hi, I'm Lisa Morton, founder of Roland Dransfield PR. Welcome to We Built This City. With this podcast, I wanted to shine a light on the people who have put the heart into modern Manchester. You can build a city with bricks and mortar, but it's the people that make Manchester great. People like my guest, Sid Williams. I was like, wait, all I've got left is bread and butter. God, you've never let me go hungry. And I just said, oh God, I'd love some ham to go in this sandwich. Got to the post, I kid you not, someone had posted me ham. Sid is the founder of Embassy, a charity providing emergency shelter for the homeless in Manchester, and he helps to resettle people who have found themselves homeless. You may have heard about Sid's Embassy Bus, which is previously a touring coach of big stars like Coldplay, Tiny Temper, Mumford & Sons and Sam Smith. Sid and his wife, Tess, raised the money to buy the bus, then kitted it out for rough sleepers to sleep in each night. They even kept the champagne fridge on board and used it for pints of milk. The bus was a stopgap, a place where people could crash, so they had a place where they could apply for ID documents, make appointments and get themselves onto the next step of resettlement. And his post-Covid plans are even bigger. He's building a mini city in Manchester to help provide a new start for 40 homeless men with massive support from Manx and from God. Sid, welcome to We Built This City. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Lisa. It's great to be here. So you're an adopted Manx. You were born in Reading and spent your early years in Rwanda and then teenage years in the south of England before yeah, ending right. up in Harper Hay. So how did you get the call into Manchester? Oh, gosh. Um, well, to, uh, to be honest, I was about 18 years old and I was at a church event and I fully intended on being a graphic designer. That was my heart. I've always loved drawing and all, all sorts of things like that. At 18, I... Uh, yeah, I had this experience. I can only describe it as a, like a some kind of big spiritual experience, really. I, I was in church. I was already a Christian, but um, they were doing like a justice night, you know. And I saw in front of my face, like watching telly, and it does, this isn't something that happens to me all the time, by the way, um, a picture of a deprived young person on a council estate. It was really specific. Then a homeless chap and then a woman in prostitution and... It, my heart was breaking, but in my head I was calmly thinking, this is so weird, I don't know these people, they might not even be real, actual people, you know. But it was clear to me that God was saying, this is what I want, this is what breaks my heart, this is what's on my heart, this is what I want you to do with your life. And so, while there's nothing wrong with graphic design, in my case, that wasn't the plan. So, um, I left that meeting in the south of England and thought, what do I do with my life? And I found a flyer in the mud outside, which is not how to plan your life, by the way, guys, but... <laughs> Uh, on that flyer, there was this kind of year out course you could do in Manchester with a charity called the Message Trust. And they were also doing uh, like a big sort of community, like social action community outreach kind of thing. So I went and did that a week later, that that sort of community action thing. And I mean, we did some a clean up in, I think it was Moss Side and we did some stuff in Heaton Park. I had no links to Manchester. None of my family from Manchester. Um, but as you described, I've never really settled anywhere particularly. So I didn't feel like I was from somewhere. So it didn't really bother me, the idea of moving somewhere new. Um, and so, um, yeah, within a matter of months, I'd moved up to Harper Hay. Um, I joined a team there that was quite new. Um, a group of Christians who decided to move in 
and not just share their faith but share their lives and I really like that because I didn't want to come in and do stuff to people I wanted to do life with people. What made you choose Harper Hay? At the time I didn't choose it for this reason I felt led there but at the time it was the number one most deprived ward in England and Wales and there are 64,000 and odd wards in England and Wales so to give you an idea it will and I hasten to add Harper Hay has improved since then so that's good um and I got there and I found most people were trying to leave. You know, their ambition was to leave. And so it was really curious. People found it really bizarre that we were, I was coming from Surrey <laughs> um, and I was trying to be downwardly mobile and I was trying to move in. And they just, people were like, well, why would you do this? You know, um, and I said, well, it's because actually um, God loves you and I want to tell you about his love, you know. So um we did all the kind of predictable stuff that, that people in their 20s do, like we ran a youth club and we did football with the kids and all that. And it, that was all good. Um, but I think then it kind of naturally evolved. So we ended up going, well, hang on a minute, you know, this teenager, their issues aren't lack of football. Their issues are awful stuff that's going on at home or, or family that's really struggling and so on. So we ended up getting more and more involved with families and that was a huge privilege. And we used to run a, I, me and my housemate, Keith, um, who went on to be my best man when I got married, he, um, he and I started running meals in our house and we'd have all sorts of, we'd have 20 odd people in some days just feeding like <laughs> people with their babies, but also some bloke from a sort of mental health house around the corner and people who were probably drug addicts and, and all, just the whole mix was in there. I absolutely loved it and there was, um, you know, I look back and I go, we were nuts, but uh, we used to have homeless guys come and live with us for a bit, you know, and try and help them out. And one of the families we were supporting was a, a single mum, seven children. She herself had been through horrible abuse as a child and then been at the hands of various nasty partners, sort of been through stuff and was now on her own with seven kids. The youngest was four, the oldest was 19 and... You know, we found them sleeping on the floorboards with no beds, you know, and no heating. So uh, myself and Keith did a few things. I'd started a social enterprise by this point because I realised a lot of the teenage boys that we'd started working with were now 18 to 25 and they weren't employed because a lot of them never even been to secondary school and they were um, getting involved in selling drugs and things. So we said, look, lads, come work for me. <laughs> Uh, what do you want to work as? It was a ridiculous way to start a business. They said they all wanted to be in construction, so we set up a little. I set up a little social enterprise, doing what I could do, it was just painting and decorating, you know. And but what was remarkable was lots of like local charities and and sort of folks linked to church and stuff. So they all oh, come on, do our place, you know. And it, and it grew, and we ended up um, bringing in volunteering professionals. So we got a proper plasterer in, a proper, proper joiner, and it. And it and it took off, and so we started getting them work experience as well in different trades. Um, anyway, so that was great. So by you know by this point, we were able to build beds for this family and things like that. You know, it was really nice kind of coming together, fix fixing the plastering. It should, it should have been the landlord's job, but he was useless. You ended up fostering too, didn't you? I later worked in children's homes, and I realised how, although they are necessary they're not the best place to end up. Like if you can avoid it and keep a family together, most of the time that's better. So but we were able to do that. And so I suppose we just were like, we, we thought, wow, how great is it to not just serve a community, but live in it and experience what it's like. And 
I remember the kids saying to me, Sid, when, when are you going to stop wearing your Christian clothes? And I said, what do you mean by Christian clothes? And they said, you know, jeans. Only Christians wear jeans. This was their worldview at the time. And I was like, I don't think that's true. I think pretty much everybody from anywhere on the planet wears jeans. They're like, no, nah, I'm not round here, mate. And I was like, well, actually, you've got a point. Yeah, if I see someone further up Rochdale Road and they're in jeans, they're probably from church. <laughs> so I was like, right, okay, fair enough. So I gave them a budget. And they took me, they wanted to take me to Bury New Road for some knocked off stuff. And I was like, look, lads, that doesn't sit with my morals. So they took me to JD Sports in the Arndale and bought me a blue uh, Adidas tracksuit um, and, uh, and matching trainers. And then they personally shaved my head. And I drew the line at bling. I was like, I will not have bling. It was like joining a tribe, honestly. It was fantastic. And... Um, Looking back, I realised that they were playing a prank on me that day because they all wore black tracksuits and they put me in this blue one, <laughs> which obviously was a joke, but at the time I didn't see it. So that obviously was a source of great humour for them. But, um, <laughs> it's bank humour there. Yeah, totally. And, uh, but do you know what changed was um, I realised when I got to like pedestrian crossings, cars that used to stop for me just kept driving. Wow, so you were literally walking a mile in another man's shoes or tracksuit. So what got you to work with people who'd found themselves homeless? Around about that time, I still had in the back of my mind that God had not just called me to work with young people, but also to work with homeless people. So I did do a bit of volunteering um, at some of the charities in Manchester City Centre. Um, and, uh, and, and of course, we had some homeless guys coming stay with us, obviously not at the same time as with fostering. That would not have been appropriate. Um, and, then, um, and, then end, and of course, some of the teenagers I worked with ended up homeless. So it was a blurred line at times. Um, but I remember one day I was reading a book by this incredible American chap who had done a load of work with Mother Teresa and then chosen to become homeless. And he'd, uh, the, the stuff he's done is incredible. Um, anyway, so I read his book, was inspired and, uh, got to know some homeless guys in, in Piccadilly Gardens and said, they said, well, it's no time like the present mate. So that was that. I went to, to go sleep rough with those guys and get to just a, a bit of an understanding of what it's like because I'd been sympathising but couldn't empathise. What was that like? Uh, what I found when you sleep on the streets is that there's a real community. People sort of look out for you and you look out for each other. Um, and so that's a sort of a draw for people. And also I found that um, it, well, obvious stuff like it, the concrete is hard and it's cold and stuff like that. But what I didn't expect was the fact that I just couldn't get any sleep at all even though I felt quite safe with the people that I'd sort of connected with, you just think you're scared of the sort of the, the what if and the imaginary person around the corner. And the guys that were clearly had slept on the street a lot, they, it, some of them had been there years and still couldn't sleep at night. They said, no, we just, on average, we get two hours sleep in every 24 hour window. And we normally sleep in the morning when there's people about and it's safer. So, um, yeah, so that was a real eye-opener. And I thought, wow, if you actually live off two hours sleep every 24 hours for a sustained period, that's going to affect your mental health and your ability to reason and make good choices. So um, so that was an eye-opener. Um, and then I, I ended up uh, marrying my wife, Tess, um, and, uh, and that was great. And there's a whole story there, but we don't have time for that. Um, do that another time, if you like, if you want a more romantic story. Um, and then um, we... Uh, we moved to Stockport um, and I started working 
for the Message Trust, which is a Christian youth work charity. Um, so I'd had I'd had eight years in Harper Hay at that point, and it was quite it was quite hard to leave in many ways. I'd started um, I'd started some youth work, which I was able to hand over to the great people. So that felt good, not to just ditch it. So the idea for buses for people who'd found themselves homeless grew out of your work at the Message Trust. Tell me more about that. For the Message Trust, they, they I started with the job part-time. I was part-time painting and decorating still, um, and part-time uh, doing youth work. And they had, this, they had this really cool, enormous bus that they'd got off Stagecoach free of charge, I think, and um, they'd converted it into a youth centre on wheels. And it wasn't naff, like it was really cool. And um, and the and it's genius because it could be at five different locations on five different nights of the week. It's better than any bricks and mortar youth centre. You didn't have to invite children to it. You went to where the young people were hanging out and by default you met the most troubled ones, you know. So um, I joined that and they were already doing a project in Anfield in Liverpool as well, one day a week um, heading out there. And the police there were saying, oh, we get 20 to 30 emergency call-outs for youth-based crime per night. <laughs> and they said, when the buses hit, it's normally zero call-outs. And we were working with the children of sort of renowned gang families and so on and, and sharing that there was a different way to do life and that God loved them. There was forgiveness and a second chance. And a lot of these kids, when you said, what do you want to do when you grow up? They said, I want to go to prison. Why? Because my dad's there, my brother's there. Da, da, da. So we were sort of readdressing some of those aspirations. And I suppose what I learned over the next six years was how to use buses for things they were never designed for. So we, we and how to drive one and teach people to drive one. And, and so we, I ended up building a fleet of five of them. And we had one in Glasgow, one in Cardiff, one in Manchester, one in Liverpool, one in Doncaster. And there's now one in London and one in the Midlands as well. But I can't take credit for those. And um, what what we did was, I suppose I got quite good at fundraising. <laughs> um, I used to buy a bus and then show people drawings and they were awesome we had like tube slides and climbing walls that went through both decks uh, had a huge space in the back and had a tree house hanging off the ceiling like it was mental you know but we had so much fun building it me and my northern irish mate andy we just uh it, i learned loads about construction and um and we had some great times and we were at the peak we were serving uh upwards of ten thousand children a year it was it was quite remarkable and always working with local churches and and almost always police and in every single city on every single project crime dropped every time and one of the most remarkable was Mersey Bank in South Manchester where um, after the bus had left even a year later the police said we've sustained a 50% drop in all crime since the bus has been here and we were we were working with this amazing couple Heather and Leighton and their friend Steve and Sarah and that was it that was the full team um, and then we had to, and then just mums off the estate after they dropped their kids to school would just come and volunteer and and we tried to run a mothers and toddlers which we did but it became mothers toddlers local drug dealers bored old people <laughs> just everyone we'd have like 70 people there and we couldn't fit them all on the bus so we'd sort of sit out uh, on chairs in a circle and remarkably it didn't rain on a morning for, for about like a year we managed to get away for a year well that's amazing for manchester can i ask when you're facing some of these challenges i know that you're really open about how important your faith is to you in helping to approach them do you ever get any pushback on that the local housing association said this is great we love what you're doing but there's a big problem on the estate with 
a sort of gang of young men that you know they were just dealing drugs and stuff but now they've got firearms and there's been a few sort of guns let off and issue and now residents are from the resident association they were anxious about going to the shops even and the, from the police point of view they had crime targets to meet of course um so they said can you also run something specifically for that gang on an evening so i said yeah i can but it'll cost you this and they said that's fine and then they said oh do you do you have to talk about god though while you're doing it and i said well listen a it's my motivation i said but b how bad would it really be if i won't say his name because you know we get on all right but so and so and his gang all became christians how bad would that really be you know they would have to love their neighbors as themselves which is quite good for you know community cohesion and they'd have to stop stealing and they'd have to follow the ten commandments and they'd stop being isolated because they'd have this group of people around them called the church and there's this sort of eternal ever-present cctv system called god that they're being watched by <laughs> so I, and they went yeah actually it'd be great if they became christians so i was like cool well let's do that then and I got my friend Nick, who's uh, who used to be a drug dealer and a gang member, and who, who became a Christian and is in a very talented professional rapper now. And he just came down, and they wrote music together, and they were, and we, and we had a laugh. We just ordered dominoes, and, and we had guys saying, "Please pray for me. I need to change. Help me get out of this, and help me get into just a regular job." And so I think I was just like, "Oh, some of these guys are just here because they can't see a different future for themselves. Yeah. That's all it is, you know." So. So that was brilliant. And I mentioned that project because when I got to know Heather and Leighton, I was so impressed by their attitude to community. You know, they did something that I had done for a couple of years in Harper Hay, which was that they lived on nothing at all and took no benefits and they just trusted God would provide. And what was it like for you to live like that with no money? I was never late on rent or bills or anything, you know. And um, I remember getting down to my last 50 quid several times and I would always just give it away. And without fail, somebody would come up to me that day and go, for some reason I feel like God said I have to give you 50 quid. Like I couldn't outgive God. It was quite a remarkable two years. I remember blowing my last 50, one of the last 50 quids I had on, on three homeless guys I just met and I was like, should we go for a meal? And they're like, yeah. So we went for a meal together. <laughs> it was just, you know, what I learned was I don't have to worry about money. That made me a lot less anxious to do slightly mad things. And one of the mad things that I did was obviously quit my job at the Message Trust and the buses. I'd always set myself a sort of target of getting up to five, and we had five, so I was like, I knew something was coming. Uh, Tess wasn't working at that point. She was running a social enterprise, but not taking a wage. She was using that to employ women that were that needed help, so we, we quite often had women live with us that needed a leg up because they were coming out of a uh, difficult relationship or, in one case, uh, a bad relationship with food, you know, and so we we're, we were working through stuff. Anyway, so she used that to employ people and build, build confidence. So... We basically then had no income and we launched Embassy. You know, if God orders something, he pays for it. You know, it's like going to, I just felt like it was going to, it's like, um, I don't know, it'd be like if Elon Musk took you to McDonald's and said, what do you want? And I was like, can I have chips and, and a Coke? I'm not worried that he's not going to be able to afford it. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I figured it'll be all right. So I think that slightly mental attitude was based in a real experience for me, you know. One time I, I actually nearly ran out of food, which never, it never did. And I, I was like, wait, all I've got left is bread and butter. God, you've never let me go hungry, you know. I was about halfway through the two-year experiment, if you like. And uh, I thought, oh, I'll just go check the post. And someone, and I just said, oh, God, I'd love some ham. Oh, I'm not a vegetarian now, but I was like, I'd love some ham to go in this sandwich. 
got to the post. I kid you not, someone had posted me ham. Like, who does that? Oh, no, it, it really no. happens. And it turned, I found out about a week later, it was my neighbour two doors down, this lad, Owen. I was like, Owen, why did you, he went, did you find the ham? And I was like, why did you post me ham? And he went, I was in Asda and I just suddenly thought it'd be hilarious to post you ham just to confuse you. And I was like, mate, you have no idea, but you answered a prayer. He was just a joker, you know, that just mad, <laughs> mad things. <laughs> I can hear from talking to you that relationships are really important to you and that those relationships have helped Embassy's mission. Can you take me back to when it started? So we started Embassy and um, got a great group of trustees, you know, friends of mine, uh, people with real experience. I've got a guy who's retired, um, uh, sort of worked for H- Hewlett-Packard and knew how to do bid writing and how to write processes and procedures. I've got a chap called... Derek Goff, who runs a quantity surveying company in Nutsford. There's um, a guy called Richard who chairs it, who's um, who works high up at Balfour Beatty, and so, and another guy, Ant, who's a graphic designer. So there you go, he got to live that dream, and um, I, and and it was just it just felt like mates on a mission, really, you know. And so, at the time, there was only 54 beds in Manchester for homeless people in in the way of shelters, you know. Uh, and back then there was a lot less homeless people as there are now but there were still 350 people trying to fit in those 54 beds Uh, so I think what we realized was yeah there was a need my best friend is a guy called Alex who um, used to have a band that would tour all around Europe you know and uh, so he was used to touring and he also um, he loved working doing bits with the homeless as well so he just said Sid why don't you put together the two things you know he said, well, couldn't you get a tour bus and use it as a shelter? And I was like, oh my goodness, this is genius. So um, we bought, a, well, we bought one tour bus that went horribly wrong. The guy who sold it to us um, sort of conned us out of 18 grand. And that was my auntie's money that she put into it. Oh. So that was really, it really floored me. I was really gutted about that. And I was like, God, where are you? You're sp- this is supposed to be something you care about. What's going on? And then, so I had 7,000 pounds left. <laughs> And I found another bus that was uh, £30,000, even smarter. We went for luxury because we really thought, you know, poverty tells people that they're worthless, you know. If you sat on the yeah. street and say hello to 100 people and 100 people ignore you, you feel surplus to requirements. No one has to say anything nasty to you. You still get the message loud and clear. And a lot of the shelters we'd visited, to be honest, you know, we, there were some that were just, here's a mattress on the floor of a hall, sleep in your clothes, you know. We wanted to go something good. And we'd found this second bus and this one had memory foam mattresses. Everyone had the curtained off space. You know, there was the latest games consoles. There was a champagne fridge, which we kept because it was brilliant, incredibly inappropriate. But we put like Greg's pasties in it and stuff like that. And then (laughs) and then we had like there was amazing like Frankie and Benny kind of style um, sofa at the top and uh, like a cinema with surround sound. Like it was so cool. And then a dining area, kitchen. It had the works. It was massive. And so I, I sort of agreed with the people selling it. I was like, yeah, I'll come down, have a look at it, you know, ahead of buying it. I didn't have the money. And then um, I met Andy Burnham and he said to me, oh, I love this idea, um, but I, you need to speak to Tim Heatley. I was like, I didn't know who Tim was. I just assumed he was someone that worked for Andy, to be honest. And he sort of did because he, he, he heads up a company called Capital and Centric, but he had just taken on a few weeks before the role of being chair of Andy's sort of, uh, mayor's charity. I hadn't fully grasped this because it was a fleeting chat with Andy. So I met with Tim 
And Tim later told me, Sid, I came with an absolute firm no, but I thought I better do it just to show Andy goodwill, you know? He said, I was absolutely certain that there's no way we were going to support you because putting a load of homeless people on the bus sounded ridiculous. So thankfully I didn't know this, so I just happily told him what I was planning with no pressure. And uh, there and then he said, right, here's the 17 grand you need because I was saved off a bit more, you know, and so I was short of 17 grand and he just gave it then out of Capital and Centric's own money as well. And, um, and from there we sort of launched it. So we bought the bus and Stagecoach were good to us, let us store it with them for a while while we, we recruited the team. And then I had to train the team to drive a bus, which was hilarious. <laughs> and, then we, and then we got proper training on how to work with the homeless and shelters. Three months worth, we took that seriously. And then we launched on the 8th of January 2019 with one homeless guy. <laughs> and um, the first homeless guy who stepped on the bus was quite angry. He said, why would you spend so much money on such a luxury bus? It's interesting, isn't it? And I said, oh, well, okay. I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't mean to offend you. And he said, well, the thing is, I spent the last two months sleeping on concrete and getting about two hours a day. I would have slept on any bus. Why did you spend so much money? I thought, what an interesting thing that he thought he wasn't worthy of having the money spent. You know, it's really strange. So I said to him, well, listen, you know, I believe... God thinks that you're valuable and in his upside down kingdom the last will be first and that you are a VIP as far as he's concerned and then he burst into tears when he pulled himself together he said now I feel valued and I just thought this is so important that whatever we do in the future we do it really quality so the bus was a good start and um, in that and, and it only lasted eight, um, 14 months because then of course Covid put an end to all dorm shelters you know um, but we in that 14 months, we helped move 39 chaps on from street to next accommodation. And interestingly, only two went to council housing and they only got into council housing because of disability. No one else made it up the pecking order enough. And what did you learn in that time? What we learned in that time was two, two massive things. One was that there was only three and a half resettlement workers in Manchester. And they had a, I mean, we've, we've shadowed one of them that was brilliant. We learned loads from her and, um, they didn't work for the council either, by the way. Uh, so they, uh, a full caseload is like 12 people. And by then there was 400 and odd people needing a resettlement worker. So there's only three and a half of them. And so we were going, we'll run a great shelter. Someone else will do the resettlement. And within a, a matter of weeks, I said to Leighton, this is never going to work. They're going to live with us forever. This is no good. Um, and so, and we were, we were realising from other shelters People really did live in shelters forever. We, we've recently housed a chap who spent seven years waiting in shelters. Seven years. He's 32 now. What a waste of the prime of his life, you know. And this is a guy with no criminal record, no addictions, no mental health issues. He just struggles with literacy. I just thought, this is criminal, you know. Just And, and so shelters were just a dead end. So I said to Leighton, what I want you to do, I'm going to employ someone else. So we employed a, a fifth person, not that we could afford it, to backfill Leighton. I said, Leighton, your job now is to take people off council housing waiting lists and to get them into full-time work. And we're going to go for normal private rental accommodation because there just was not enough local authority housing, basically. And so Leighton did that and we pulled together. I, I went networking every single week um, for two and a half years so before the bus and until recently 
I went networking without fail, except for like Christmas week, I'd be networking, business networking all the time. I found hardly any charities at all did it. It was really weird. They just weren't represented. Really? They just weren't there, which of course was in our favor. Not that we compete, but you know, I just thought I found all these middle-sized companies who weren't big enough to have a corporate social responsibility department, but they had a hundred staff and they had decent turnover. And usually the CEO, the, the woman or the man at the top was the person who'd launched the company, you know? And uh, almost all of them were like, yeah, yeah, we've been meaning to do something for charity, never quite got to the top of my to-do list. So I'd go, well, let me save you the effort, why don't we be your charity, you know? So um, so we built relationships that way, and we now have 13 companies that employ our guys full-time work. So by the by the autumn of our first year, you know, we had, I think, pretty much everyone on the bus in full-time work or at college if they needed to be. So it was just... Other sh- people running other shelters like, how have you done it? All of our guys are on universal credit and we're just waiting forever to get them into council housing. None of our guys were waiting to get into council housing and, and almost all of them were full-time employed. And I said, you just, you've got to go out there and network and, and there's goodwill out there, but you have to go find it and connect to it. And we're good at that, I think, in Manchester. Very good we? at it. I mean, yeah, that's, we're based on networks and collaborations. Exactly. So you're using that well. Yeah, exactly. And I just think that this is a generous city. It's a warm-hearted kind of city. I mean, I've, you know, I, admittedly, I've never tried running a homeless project in any other city, but... I suspect Manchester would come out on top just because of the, just because everybody seems up for it, you know. So what we found was um, this was the way forwards. And so then the only hurdle we had was convincing landlords that they wanted to take someone straight from shelter, even though they had a job. You know, there was a fear about that. And we would often visit 20 to 30 properties per person we housed before we found somewhere. So it was incredibly inefficient and very frustrating. So Tim Heatley and I were talking about how we needed to move away from a shelter model and into actually being the housing provider ourselves, being a landlord, before COVID struck. So he introduced me to uh, Peel Holdings. We met with James Whitaker, um, And James jumped on this. The first meeting we had, he said, right, here's a plot of land in uh, at St. George's Island. Um, you can have this free of charge. Um, and we've got a lease off for now for 125 years i mean i did say to james i was hoping to be retired by then but um so the, <laughs> you've got a bit more yeah. to do yet I think. so um <laughs> so we you know in the first 10 years they're not charging us anything after that it's really cheap so i thought this is generous and we uh, and then even before covid reared its ugly head we sort of partnered with arcadis and john matthews architects we're starting to draw up some ideas then covid struck so we had to shut the bus down it was a bit of a scramble we before the government even announced its hotel money we'd already put our guys and we'd gone to a private landlord and he'd said yeah embassy can be my tenant <laughs> so embassy was the tenant and we had all our friends to stay uh, which i checked with the council and they went to be honest at the moment we don't rhyme just crack on you know so we did that which was sort of okay-ish and then we ditched that house and we've now got two houses you know two shared houses and that's working much better. And we um, we now get to end people's homelessness because we've we've set up new leases where then they rent from us. You see, um, and it's actually Salford Council these days that sends us most people. And so um, we're actually able to cut out the shelter completely. So if someone becomes homeless, Salford Council will send them to us, and we end their homelessness on day one. How great is that? You know. That's so there's amazing. no more years of yeah. waiting in shelters. There's no more shelters needed if we work this way. And so then when someone leaves us we just write a landlord's reference for someone who's full-time employed 
it's just a completely different kettle of fish. You can just get people, get people on with life. So we thought this is great. Uh, and we also reinvented embassy. We thought, hang on, we're not a shelter, so let's stop behaving like one. We will not cook for people. We will not clean for people. We will not, mm. you know, we won't do that stuff. And we're not doing the shopping anymore. Um, we've had various companies offer us food and clothing, and we turn it down now, um, which we try and do it politely. But we don't want to be a handout organization anymore. We want to be a hand up. So what we do now is we say, look, you got your universal credit. We'll help you get set up on that if needs be. We'll buy you a phone. We'll set you up on email. We'll get your bank account. We'll do all that. We'll hold your hand, but you're paying for it and you're going to learn. So we go shopping with people. We write a budget with people. We cook, but they do the cooking. We're teaching them to cook. So in the first month of people living with us, they learn to cook. They learn to budget. They learn to shop. They learn to clean. Um, and then we approach corporate partners. And you know, at the moment, all but two of our guys are either in full-time work or we've just set them up and they're about to start. So, um, And so then suddenly the help tapers, tapers off a little bit because they're in work, you know, but we still see two hours a week. But, but when people land with us, it's six and a half hours compulsory training per week per resident. Mm. No one's doing anything like that in Manchester. Um, and so we're practicing for what we're going to do at the village. So this is a really big step up from what you've had with the bus and the houses you've worked on so far, isn't it? So can you tell me about your plans for Embassy Village? We're going to build 40 homes, give 40 people their own front door, um, and we're going to have a village hall, which is going to be a training kitchen, a sort of big breakout space for, for group sessions, offices for the staff, a one-to-one counselling room, a laundry, a space to do church, space to hang out. Uh, a place to celebrate birthdays and watch the football and all the rest of it. And then we've also got uh, on the site plans for little little sports pitch and gardens and all the rest of it. Uh, and the site is in, it, it, the site's incredible. You know, it's surrounded by water on three sides. It's almost an island. So it's like a little oasis in the city, you know. And that's obviously how you and I kind of met by somebody put me in touch with you to say, would you be able to help in any way? Yeah. And what even in the even the space of a few months, I've just been blown away, but I suppose it would be, you know, you would expect it anyway, but the amount of people in the community who have come together to support this in either given time for free or they're talking about potentially sponsoring or helping to build one of the units, you know, we've taken it to lots of people that we know and the immediate response has been, how can we help? Yeah. I mean, how have you felt? And do you think that's maybe also because of the past 12 months that we've been through? Is, do you think that's had an impact on on that response. I think it's a combination of the last sort of four years where we've seen this huge rise in homelessness and a lot of the companies getting involved with us do have a city centre presence so they invariably their staff see it day in day out sometimes they've actually said you know people sleeping in their doorway at times that kind of thing so yeah it's I think it's at the forefront of people's minds and um, but then covid also i think is for a lot of people it's sort of reset it's made people go what's actually valuable here in my life what's important um is it just about money and career or is there other things at stake here you know and um so i think when you combine those things and i think we're all aware that unfortunately there's going to be a lot more poverty coming our way um you know the ban on evictions is about to end um yeah the government support for the everyone in scheme technically ends at the end of this month it might get extended we'll see um you know the government thought that there was 4000 homeless people because of the way that they count the homeless uh, but 37000 people 
moved from shelters into hotels, so that clearly was wrong. Mm. And there's been a realization, I think, mm. of the scale of the need and that mm. there's more need coming. So, yeah, as you say, it's a generous place. I think, you know, we've, we've got 40 homes to get sponsored. So far, I've got 12 of them pledged. We're not asking anyone to part with their cash at this point because they don't even have planning permission. <laughs> but when we have the planning, um, yeah. you know, I think it will, it, it'll be great because we've got to hit the ground running if we've got enough pledges in that we can draw down. Um, we've, you know, someone's already pledged to sponsor the building of the village hall. Um, and the homes themselves are so tangible. I think, Lisa, that's another big part of it for companies are coming in going, wait, we can have, we can say we built this home. It's a one-off cost, but it'll still be there decades later, still doing something. And we can have our logo on the side of it. This is great, you know, and there's a lot of companies who, um, who are, who are then offering to employ whoever lives there as well. What a great story. Here's Joe Bloggs. He was homeless, but we bought him a house and employed him. I mean, that's, Yeah, that isn't it. It's a whole new ecosystem now that's sustainable. Exactly, isn't it? and what a beautiful thing to use your business for good. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's. I think business is easily a force for good. You know, I mean, I ran a social yeah. enterprise and proved that. But you don't have to run a social enterprise to do something really great with your company. You know, that's your duty. I feel. You know, the fact the fact is that you have to put more in than you take out, make profits, but yeah. have profits with purpose. Oh, totally. And, and we've lived with a mindset of. Our businesses are there to make money. We pay our taxes. The government uses those taxes to help the poor people. But what we're realising is the government is struggling to meet those needs and council doesn't have enough accommodation, so it's not really fully working anyway. Whereas now, we're going to businesses and going, why don't you just directly help me help some poor people and we'll know what the real, we'll know what it really went to and how tangible it is because they'll be working for you <laughs> and they'll be living in exactly. the house you sponsored, you know. And I think also it's not just about giving money, is it, because some businesses aren't in that position and we work with a lot of purpose-driven organisations that can't give cash but they can give time or stuff in kind. Yes which often is is just as important, isn't it? It is. And, and engages your workforce more, I suppose. If you've got people within your organisation who are coming to work because they know they work with a business that has got purpose and want to create a legacy, you engage them in, in some of these types of initiatives. Yeah, of course you do. Even when we had the bus, we used to take it in the daytime to visit companies, you know, and all the staff would pile out and go, oh, this is what the boss is on about, you know. We had 60 volunteers, you know, when we were running the shelter and... Most of them came from churches and so on, but we also had people from companies that were involved with us. And and like I say, I mean, just in the last month, there's four people that we've moved into employment. And that's because of the relationships that we've built, you know. Um, some of them, it's the first time they've employed somebody. Others, it's like the seventh time, you know, just some wonderful relationships there. How could anyone listening to this podcast reach out to you to find out how they can, you know, they can help? Uh, people definitely can help because we've still got a couple of million pounds to find this year. So mm. money always helps. Sponsorship of one of the homes, there's still plenty to go. We need that. And also what we're finding is people sponsoring something and then introducing us to the next person jobs for the guys but also support if you think hang on there's a construction here there's something we can do along the lines of materials or or what have you You know a big quarry has just offered to give us all the hardscaping all the stone and brick and everything and that's going to save us tens of thousands you know so there's things like that that I don't even think of immediately, but they come to you and you go, oh my goodness, yeah, we would love yeah. that, you know. So It's like the ham sandwich coming through the it is, box again, it is, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, <laughs> so I think um, basically get in touch because even if I've not suggested something, it doesn't mean that I don't need it. Can I give my contact details? Is that okay? Or? 
Yeah, yeah so absolutely. My yeah, email so. is Sid, spelled S-I-D. I wasn't conceived in Australia or anything. So uh, Sid.Williams <laughs> at embassybus.org. So that's Sid.Williams at embassy, spelt like British Embassy, bus.org. That's how to get hold of me direct. Or if that's hard to remember, just have a look at embassybus.org. You can contact us through the website. There's also a, a temporary website which we were using for the public consultation because we're in weird times and you can't just meet people to do public consultation, which is called embassyvillage.co.uk. If you want to have a look and see some of the CGI images and, and stuff of, and plans of the site, that's quite interesting as well there. So, yeah, that's cool. I think what we've seen is that, as you said before, people are less focused on having outward signs of wealth um, and because you've not been able to even show any of that off anyway in 12 months, even if you've got it. And your wealth is about the relationships that you have and living life with purpose yeah. otherwise it feels like quite an empty life and i think that reset that we've had in 12 months has really propelled so many more people to feel that when they get up in the morning they do feel like they want to be making a difference and we do a lot of work with with different charities and it's really important that people can make understand that they can make a huge difference by doing a small amount you don't have to have all the answers for everything but you could maybe make a phone call to somebody or you could suggest something, as you say, That's right. that could make a massive difference to an organisation to, and to people. Yeah, and I think there's a difference, isn't there, between success and doing something significant, you know? Um, mm, yeah. And it, it just depends how you want... Success isn't only monetary, is it? You know, it's, we can have success in our relationships or in our love for others or in, mm. in uh, trying to achieve something... Uh, tangible that's meaningful, you know, that will, will help other people. And I think... You know, very few people on their deathbeds have ever said, I wish I spent more time in the office, you know. <laughs> Most people say, I wish I spent more time with my family or what have you, you know. So, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just talking about family and relationships, you work with your wife, Tess, do, don't you? Yeah. We're um, co-founders. How does, uh, we're, you're co-founders, okay. Yeah. So how does that work for you practically? I mean, I've heard some horror stories about working with your spouse. I mean, she used to run huge fundraising events and is extremely efficient and organized and capable um i've often commented that if it wasn't for tess we wouldn't have got this far like i would have burnt out at some point she sort of looks after me and watches watches that um but she's got real strategy to her you know she has a lot of strategy um and i've relied on that so many times um and so you know i mean tess also works employed for embassy she's currently on maternity we've we've just adopted a three-year-old and we've got a five-year-old already so um she's really enjoying that at the moment um but because she lives with me it never fully goes away you know she's always we're always talking about it and praying together and working out what's what's next and you know actually if you look at most of the most success not that i'm trying to be a successful businessman clearly but most of the successful business people if you look at them they're married people you there's something about being in a relationship that is like it's like the the best and the worst mirror in the world. You find out the best things about yourself and you also found that, find out how selfish you are and how manipulative you can be and how sort of grumpy you can be and you just think, oh my goodness, I'm just a big toddler. I need to grow up, you know. So um, there's something about that that teaches you so many of those skills you need to be successful in all your other relationships, including in the business world. You know, that that that's just true. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, I couldn't have done it without Tess. I'm not saying that was a throwaway line. That's actually true. I think there's times, especially in the early days when things were so hard that I thought, oh, we've got to jack this in. And Tess was like, you can't. There's no way you've got to keep going, you know. 
Um, yeah, so many have. Well, I think you're giving so much to so many people. Uh, it's like Jed, my friend Jed King from School Fades Foundation. It takes its toll, you know. Yeah. He works in the homeless community, yeah. and and it does take its toll. So to have somebody there that can, you know, can have you back yeah, is definitely. great. I mean, we talk about values at Roland Ransfield, and and clearly, I mean, your life is, you know, you live your values um, every day. Is there anything about our particular values that kind of stands out to you that you can relate to in the work that you do? I think you've got to have integrity. I think you've got to be the kind of people that say what you mean and mean what you say. Um, and I think that, and I think with that, you have to have loyalty. Um, loyalty to, you know, when I used to run a painting and decorating company, that means loyalty to your suppliers and your customers and all that sort of thing. And um, I just think that in the long run, that will get you further than always trying to get the best possible deal for yourself, you know. Um, and I think that's also how we have to behave with the people who support us and also the people we support, you know. We, we've got to we've got to be consistent. Um, and we also have a little family saying, which is the Williams family never give up. Like, you just never give up. You just keep going. Um, I always think if you have a good heart and keep going, um, you'll get a lot further than most people, you know, because most people give up at some point, <laughs> you know. To be honest, our values mostly come from our reading of the Bible. You know, that's where I get most of my values from. Um, and it's served me well so far. And do you think there's a certain value that you could attribute Manchester with? I think Manchester is is this kind of... Uh, it, I feel like it's really forward thinking, you know. I feel like people are willing to give stuff a go and think outside the box. I'm not saying that other cities aren't. But there's just a friendliness about Manchester that then extends into other things, you know. So, I mean, when I grew up down south, you didn't talk to people on the train. You know, I remember trying to talk to some business people on the train once. I just thought, oh, start up a conversation. And this man turned to me and said, you do know we're commuters? I was like, yeah, I'd guessed (laughs) from your suits. And they went... And you do know commuters don't talk to each other. No word. This wasn't a joke. This was his worldview. Oh, this yeah. was. Yeah. I was like, right. okay, I will not talk to you. Came to Manchester and every like you couldn't get on the bus without someone knowing your life story by the end of it. Like, exactly. Where are you from? Where are you going? Where did you get on? And um, I think that. Where'd you get your jeans? Yeah, from? Well, you were Christian, um, and so I think that extended then into. I think that extends into people being open-minded about you know let's be innovative. It is an innovative city. I think. You know, you can see that, you know, just by the way it's growing and, and the kind of companies that are here, the kind of companies that want to be based here and that are moving here, you know. Mm. Um, I think it feels like a can-do kind of place. Um, and it's also mm. full of banter. Uh, having grown up down south and moved up here, you're like, oh, are you taking the mick out? Oh, no, this is just the local humour. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> and, that, and now I really enjoy northern banter and it's very funny. <laughs> Would you consider yourself a Manc now? I hope so. It's the place I've lived the longest. So it's, you know, it's as good as home as anywhere is ever going to be, I think. Um, for me, it's where I feel God called me to. I often call it the promised land, yeah. you know, just, just to make people laugh. But it, I think... It, it's a, we, re- we can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people think the same. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of my... We've, we've just recruited two new staff, Ruth and Emily. And Ruth is sort of born and bred Mancunian and went to live down in the West Country obviously terrible error and she she's moving back now with her husband and their little boy and um she said oh, i'm so excited about moving back to manchester it's just the place to be and she said so we said it's the, so we've been calling it the promised land like, when are you coming back to the promised land <laughs> well that leads us into my five questions on the promised yeah, go on land then. then so 
What's your favourite place of reflection in Manchester? Mm, to be honest with you, I, I love the Northern Quarter. Um, and I used to, they, it doesn't exist anymore, sadly, but Unity Radio used to have a warehouse where you could go and spray paint. You could do graffiti legally, you know. Um, so I used to love that. I was never very good at it. I used to do stencils, you know. I never, I was, never had the balls to do a stencil anywhere illegal. I just did it legal places on, on canvas for people. I used to sell them in Affleck's Palace at one point. It was quite good. Um, but I used to like that. And, and just the, I just liked the vibe of the Northern Quarter. It just felt, it was yeah. just fun, you know, and creative. I used to love Aff, uh, Affleck, um, sorry, um, Fred Aldo's. Um, just yes, going in there yeah. and all, the, all that Love stuff. it there. Yeah, so... Yeah, that's your artist. Yeah, I think so. You, that, you know, if I had, it? if I allowed myself a day off, I'd go there and just look around and uh, enjoy all the creative stuff. Can definitely sink half a day there, for yeah. sure. Um, which Manchester band or artist would you like to see on the Embassy tour bus? We've known obviously Coldplay, Tiny Temper. There's some massive names, but what about a Manchester band? Well, we've sold the bus. Do you know what? When we open the village, I, I, I would like bands to come down. You know, um, they're. There's one that it's not that famous, but there's one called LZ7, which my friend Lynn's West heads up, and they're Manchester-based. Summer Mancunian up in three words. Um, I think resilient, optimistic, cheeky. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. And what do you order at the chippy? Uh, I always seem to order cod and chips for some reason. It's not very creative. I like mushy peas. <laughs> because I'm an adopted northerner and I like gravy. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you're vegetarian. You're not vegetarian. Oh, I have fish now and then. Yeah. Fish, okay, I'm yeah. A... <laughs> All good vegetarians eat fish. Um, and if you had to leave Manchester now, what one souvenir would you take? Oh. I don't know. I, I wouldn't really want to leave, to be honest. <laughs> I think, well, I think... Good um, <laughs> I think it's the friendships, isn't it? That's the most important thing. Mm. I think it's the friendships. Yeah. yeah. Sorry for the cheesy answer. You've already created a legacy of kindness and generosity um, in the city, in Greater Manchester. And what key lessons would you like your daughters and the future generations of Manchester to be taught about in terms of compassion and helping others? Well, I think I want my children to... I think I want my children to love God and to know that God loves them, to know that their lives aren't random, that they're full of purpose, Mm. um that they are valued and they're precious not by what they look like or how much money they have but but the fact that it's to whom they belong you know um and i think i kind of want them to go follow their own dreams and whatever they feel god's saying for them what have you but um yeah i do want them to be generous i do want them to remember the poor in what they do yeah i think that's it really that's wonderful. That's a lovely note to finish on. Thank you, Sid. And thanks for joining me. Thank you for all the work that you're doing for people in Greater Manchester. And I hope people that are listening to this will really have a think about how they can use their connections or their time or their ideas to help support Embassy Village. Lisa, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Sid Williams helped to build this city by not doing faith to people, but by doing life with them. By asking God for ham and by walking in another man's tracksuit. We Built This City is out every Thursday when you'll hear from another incredible Greater Mancunian. If you want to find more out about Roland Dransel PR and you'd like some help in creating your legacy, please head to rdpr.co.uk for more information. 
or give us a call on the same number we've had for 24 years, 0161 236 1122. Thank you and see you next time.